following recording is from Parramatta Christian Church. We pray that this message inspires you in your walk with Christ. and really exciting that we get to begin our journey in Acts. Uh, We're we're calling this series Unstoppable on Pentecost Sunday. Now, as Pentecostals, this is is a big high feast day for us um, in in remembering God's great outpouring of His Spirit uh, that we will come to next week in Acts chapter 2. But this is just such an exciting uh, moment for us in, in thinking about how God transformed this group of disciples that we meet in the Gospels who just are messed up, who are timid, who are afraid, who are confused, who are just trying to figure this whole Jesus movement thing happening, who are still trying to figure out, you know, did they really see and experience that Jesus was alive and just trying to wrestle with all these things to this incredibly powerful small group of people that become this unstoppable force that take the gospel from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. Uh, What a remarkable and wonderful journey that we're on. And so we're going to be looking at the first eight chapters of the book of Acts. And on that, I want to encourage you, come having pre-read the chapters. We'll be mostly following a chapter at a time. Um, I also encourage you to have a look at the Bible Project overview on the first 12 chapters of Acts. Um, You can find that uh, by Googling it on YouTube. Uh, We we put a link in the the PCC Facebook group. You can find it there as well. Um, Just a really helpful way to, to get some of the background information about the book of Acts. And so that way, you know, we don't have to spend a lot of time covering some of that background information. And also, you'll notice when you're reading through Acts that some of the chapters are really, really long. So we won't have, again, the opportunity to read them in the service in its entirety. So having come pre-read will help you kind of get the most out of what we're talking about and looking at. So this morning, just want to make a couple of comments by way of introduction to the book of Acts as a whole um, before we look specifically at chapter 1. Acts is a tricky book to read and for us to apply and understand today, mainly because it's part of a two-volume work written by Luke, and it's separated by John in the middle. Like I think if it went Matthew, Mark, John, Luke, Acts, it would kind of get a better flow of it. But John kind of get stuck in. So that's one problem. The second thing is that it's narrative, okay? It's, it's stories. And there's been this ongoing debate in church circles as to how much doctrine and theology can you get out of a narrative book. And there's this debate of, you know, prescription versus description. Uh, and, you know, is it just describing what things happen without God expecting us to do those things and to follow those things and to apply and live those things? Or is it prescriptive where it's commands and it's instructions that God gives us to live by? Now, I'll give you an example. When I was a, a youth pastor many, many years ago, young people would often come to me and go, you know, the Bible teaches that we can have multiple wives. Is that okay for us today? I go, no, the, the Bible doesn't teach that. It describes that. That is what happened in its culture, in its day. But when you actually stand back and look at the principle that the Word of God teaches, it is monogamy. And every example of polygamy in the Bible accompanies a negative pronouncement or a negative outcome. You know, so that's the tricky place we're in. And when we come to the book of Acts, there's been so much debate as to, well, you know, how, how many things from Acts can we take as theology, can we take as doctrine, can we apply in the life of the church today? 
So I'll give you some examples. Pretty much every denomination has derived their theology of baptism from the book of Acts. Right, so if you want infant baptism, you go to the passage where the Philippian jailer and his whole household become were baptized. And so people use that argument to say, well, we can baptize children. You want believers' baptism with the Baptists and Pentecostals, then you, know, you go to the story of Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch where they went down into the water and you know, they baptized and he came, you know, he was, he'd heard the gospel, he'd repented, responded, and it's adult baptism, both from the book of Acts. Uh, many forms of church government, thinking about how should leadership work within the life of the church. People go to the book of Acts, whether it's a congregational model, or whether it's an eldership model, or whether it's other leadership structures. All those examples we find in the book of Acts because the church was in its formative stage and things were happening. And some of those things, they're figuring it out. Some of those things, they're putting into practice, going, yeah, that's a good way to do it. So definitely there's things there that help us and inform us in thinking about church. The question is, which parts do we say, yep, that's applicable and prescriptive for us, and which other parts are merely descriptive and just say, this is what they did, but it's not normative or binding for us today. So one example you'll be happy about is that we'll see next Sunday that the church met every day, it says. So if you want to say, look, the Bible says, I can take you to Acts chapter 2, and show you that they met every day. But do, do we do that? Well, no, we don't. We meet on Sunday or in connect groups. Again, that's that tension, right? If you want to say, well, the Bible says, well, then we're doing that prescriptive thing. So that's one thing we need to wrestle with. But having said all of that, Luke has intentionally chosen the events that he wants to record and is wanting to tell a story that has a theological meaning to it. It's not just random facts that he's collected. And when you read Acts in light of Luke's gospel as well, one of the things that you will clearly see is that there is an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And so that's why Luke and Acts for Pentecostals is such a, a strong place for us to go in understanding our pneumatology or our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Other things that we learn a lot about is Luke's teaching about how this church began to form its own self-identity in its gospel mission in the world. So a good way to understand the book of Acts is theological history. Yes, it's history. Yes, it's recording events that are happening in the life of the early church. But there's a theological intent that is driving Luke's selection of material that he covers, which is why people say, well, he only mentions Peter, James, and John, and then Paul. What about all the other apostles? Well, their accounts and the things that they did and how God used them wasn't relevant for Luke's particular intent, which is why after a certain point around chapter 15, you don't hear much about Peter at all. You suddenly start hearing about Paul, and the rest of it is all about Paul. They're all intentional things. So Luke is selecting material because he wants to teach us. He wants to teach the church. He wants to teach us something about God and his purposes and plans in the world. And he's using these events that happened in the life of the early church to show us the things that he wants to teach us. So how do we read and interpret and apply the book of Acts? Well, one scholar said that a good way to approach the book of Acts is to ask ourselves this question. What is the abiding principle? What is the spiritual truth about God and his plans and purposes in the world that Luke wants to teach us? And then how do we apply that in our world, in our context, in our church, in our life today as Christians, as followers of Jesus? Okay? So that's kind of broad 
some introductory stuff as we continue this journey. So let's talk about Acts chapter 1. Um, on our prayer walk last Saturday, I saw this poster um, at the bus stop just down here near, near Ferris Street. And it said this, setbacks are just comebacks waiting to happen. That's an NRMA campaign at the moment. And I kind of took a photo of that. I went, that's really cool because I, I think it's really a good description of the story of the disciples in the book of Acts. Like as you read it, you just see time and time again, they have these setbacks, these massive things that happen that threaten the future of the church. And yet in every one of those instances, God prevails. God comes through by the power of the Holy Spirit and keeps the gospel moving forward in his mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's Luke's purpose. And so if you wanted to summarize, why is Luke writing all of this stuff? What is his intention? What is he trying to communicate to us? Well, a good summary is to show us that Jesus is still at work in the world. Through spirit-empowered followers of Jesus, Jesus is still teaching and working and doing stuff to advance the purpose of God on planet Earth. That's really what Luke wants to show. And he's wanting to say that in spite of satanic opposition, in spite of the threat of church splits, in spite of persecution and religious opposition, in spite of powerful political rulers trying to hold back and squash the gospel, God prevails. That the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is at work to advance His kingdom on planet Earth. But what is He trying to achieve in us? What is His intention for us? Well, I think it is to encourage us. I think it's to reassure us because in our Christian journey as a church collectively, we will hit roadblocks. We will experience setbacks. We will go through difficult things and hard seasons. And Luke's letter or Luke's account of the book of Acts is there to encourage us that we're on the right path, even though sometimes it might not seem like it and we might go, where is God in the mess of all that's going on? But he wants to encourage us that we're on the right path, that we, we, can, we need to keep going, keep trusting God, keep believing in the power of God at work in your life, in my life, in the life of his community to accomplish God's purpose, to bring all things under the submission of the Lordship of Christ. To, to take this gospel from one community in, in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth, as we're already seeing it now. And in spite of persecution that's still ravaging many nations in the world, the gospel continues to go forward. And in our context, as we look at our culture and we think, wow, man, people are so far from God. People are so resistant to the gospel. People don't want to talk about Jesus. As Grace said in that video, you mentioned Jesus, it's like a swear word. They don't want to talk about Jesus. And you think, how are we going to evangelize? How, are, how is God going to bring people to himself? You know, and I was encouraged again this morning reading John chapter 6, where, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws them. God's still at work. And in spite of every setback and opposition and obstacle that the church, universal, and our church more locally, and you individually will face in your Christian experience, God is at work. And God will be at work. And by the power of His Spirit, He will advance His kingdom. That's good news. That's encouraging. That's reassuring for us when we face obstacles and challenges. So I want to share with you four things from Acts chapter 1 that characterize this early group of disciples as they're forming, that they're coming together, as they're trying to figure this thing out, that I trust will really encourage and bless us this morning. 
the, the first thing I see here in this passage is that they encountered the resurrected Jesus. And we're told in these first 11 verses that they spent 40 days hanging out with Jesus, spending time with him, immersing themselves in his presence. And in that time, Jesus gave them four things. The, the first thing he give, gave them is certainty. Uh, Luke tells us that, that Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, he doesn't tell us what they were. In the Gospels, we see that Jesus ate, he walked through doors, he allowed them to touch his hands, and whether he did more of that or other things, we don't know, but the point is that these disciples had no doubt that Jesus was alive. And I want to say to you that we also stand in that same certainty. Christianity isn't some myth. It's not pie in the sky. It's not based on my opinion or the opinions of a whole bunch of people. It is based on certain historical, absolute truth statements that Jesus is alive. And that's what these disciples got when they spent time with Jesus. And that was going to be important for them because you'll notice that that's what they preached over and over again. We are witnesses We know for certain that Jesus is alive and they were willing to die for it because they knew it was true. Absolutely. In a world, in a culture that doesn't believe in absolute truths and that that says, well, all truth is relative and it's your opinion and my opinion, what feels, we can as Christians be certain that Jesus is alive. The second thing that Jesus gave them is understanding. Luke tells us that he spent time teaching them about the kingdom of God. He gave them understanding as to what this kingdom of God would look like. And we see, you know, from the disciples' question in in verse 6, that they still didn't understand the full nature of the kingdom of God. They say to Jesus, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're still thinking about the kingdom of God as being a, a national thing that involved Israel. They still think it's a political thing because that's why they say about restoring the kingdom to Israel. And they still think about the kingdom as something that was going to happen now, immediately. That Jesus was going to somehow come as, as the conquering Messiah and th- overthrow Rome. And, and Jesus has to go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You, you still don't get it. And so Jesus has to teach them and give them an understanding about what the kingdom of God really is. And sometimes in the West, we, we can think about the kingdom of God that way. When we get discouraged that, oh, we've lost a Christian prime minister now, and we've had a change of government, we can kind of go, well, what does that mean for us? Well, the kingdom of God is not political. It's the rule and the reign of God's kingdom in people's hearts. It's a spiritual kingdom. And it has inaugurated in Christ now and will be consummated when Jesus comes back. So we don't need to be discouraged, but we need to have a right understanding of what the kingdom of God is. And Jesus gave them that. The third thing Jesus gives them is encouragement. Because Jesus said, don't, don't bother about the times. That's for God to know. But you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on. And you will be my witnesses, he says in verse 8. And earlier on, Jesus says, John baptized with water in verse 5, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Baptized. Now that's a word that you'll come, will come up with at different times in the book of Acts. And it just means to immerse or to dip something. And metaphorically or symbolically in the book of Acts, it's used to represent a subjective experience of being immersed in the fullness of God in the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. Interestingly, a few other times, Luke will use this idea that the Holy Spirit came on people. 
which is another way of saying they were baptized, they were immersed in the presence of God, in the fullness of God, in the power of God. And Jesus is encouraging them as he's about to send them out, and that's the last thing that Jesus gave them, this commissioning, this idea of mission, this idea of sending out, that they are going to be witnesses, that he's encouraging them that they don't have to do this in their own strength. In fact, that they can't do it in their own strength. That the Holy Spirit is not an optional extra for Christians. It's not like you can say, I choose that privilege package. That's not how Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about the Holy Spirit as that it's an essential imperative if we are to live the life of faith that Jesus came to inaugurate. It's, it's the one reality. And he's encouraging them that, and this might be scary for us, that truth alone, doctrine alone, correct Bible teaching alone is not enough. Jesus says we need the power of the Holy Spirit, which is why Jesus gave them both. He gave them understanding of the kingdom. He taught them and he said, I'm going to give you what the Father has been, the promise of the Holy Spirit is going to come on you in power and then you will be my witnesses. It's both. And so Jesus says, you are going to begin in your own hometown, in your neighborhood, with your friends, your family, those you know, but it's going to extend well beyond that. And it is going to be in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the first characteristic. The second characteristic of this early church is that they were in unity. They were in unity. Luke tells us in in verses 12 onwards that this group of people that met, about 120, there were apostles there and he lists all 11 of them. He tells us that there were women there. There were men, obviously. There were ordinary people because other than the 11, there was a whole bunch of other people that weren't apostles. He tells us that Jesus' mother was there. He tells us that Jesus' brothers were there, which Catholics really don't like that verse. But here's the thing. In the Gospels, what do we see with these disciples? They're always clamoring for power. Who's the greatest? Who's the number one? Who's the kingpin? Who's the most important? We don't see any of that here. Even though Peter steps up, as we looked about a few weeks ago, how Jesus said, on you, Peter, will the rock that I'm going to build my church. Peter fulfills that and steps into the leadership. We don't see James and John going, whoa, 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 who made you the boss? We don't see any of that. And, you know, we're told in the Gospels that when Mary and, and Jesus' family came to see him, they sent a message to Jesus saying, oh, your family's here. And Jesus says, everyone who does my will is my brother and my sister. We don't see Mary saying, hold on a second, I am the mother of the Savior of the world. Or Jesus' brother's going, whoa, 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 you know, hey, he's my, he's my homeboy, he's my brother. We, we see none of that. We see a group of people who were just united together. We, we're told in verse 14, they all joined together. And we'll see that theme again coming up over and over again in the book of Acts. This unity that brought people together. And by sure, there, there were threats to that unity. Throughout the book of Acts, we'll see that there were things that threatened to pull the church apart, to divide them, to, to bring disunity. And we see the Holy Spirit continually working to bring the people together to be united in Christ. You know, unity is a powerful thing. Powerful thing. In, in Early in Genesis, the Tower of Babel story that's unity to sin and to ungodliness. And God says, this is powerful. They're united around a common purpose and a common mission in an ungodly way. And God divides them and disunifies them. And we'll see how significant Acts chapter 2 is in light of that. Because God confuses their languages then. 
And right now in Sri Lanka, many of you would know, there's a whole bunch of political protests going on in my country. And you know what everyone is saying that, that's such a powerful thing about this is the unity that's there. There are Muslims, Buddhists, Hindus, Christians, all coming together. This is radical in my country. When religion and, and uh, ethnic identity and so many other, the rich and the poor, have, they've always been lines of division. Always. And yet in this one moment, Everyone is coming together with a single purpose and a single vision and a single mission. That's what we see in the book of Acts here. And you look around here, there's people from about 25 different countries. There's men, there's women, there's young, there's old. And there's in the natural so many things that can divide us. There's people who've been here for decades. And there's people who've just started coming to our church in the last six months or a year. All of those things can divide us and we can lay claim to a whole bunch of things and go, oh, this is me and we can try and boost up our own sense of ego or identity or pride or whatever it is on legitimate credentials. But if there's anything we can learn from the book of Acts, it's the power of coming together in Jesus to be about the mission of Jesus in the power of the Spirit in our day. So I encourage you, church, look around, celebrate, appreciate, value, embrace, love, welcome one another as being fellow travelers, brothers and sisters in Christ, united by Jesus, brought together in the Holy Spirit to journey together as God's people at PCC in this moment. Which is why one of our core values is not to see any other church in, P- in Paramount as a threat. But they're the part of the body of Christ. We want to be united with them, partnering with them, because we recognize that they're on the same mission that we are, to see Jesus glorified in our city. They were united. The third thing that you know, I want to encourage you with from this early church was that they, they, they focused on mission. You know, there was so much that they could have been distracted by. You know, we're told in verse 10, when they see Jesus airlifted off them, that they're standing there looking intently into the sky. The last time Peter and James and John experienced something supernatural when Jesus was transfigured, they wanted to camp out there. They wanted to have a camp meeting and go, Jesus, let's just stay here. This is awesome. This is so great. We get to see Moses, Elijah, see you glorified. Let's just hang out here. And Jesus was like, no, we got to get on with mission. And it would have been, again, easy for these disciples. And I love it's like what the angel says, almost like a little bit of a rebuke. When he says, why are you standing here looking into the sky? He's coming back. Just get on with it. Go for it. You know, and it's so easy when we come together as church to have such amazing times in the Holy Spirit at prayer and worship nights or soak nights or even at a Sunday service. And we go, oh, it's so nice. This is great. This is wonderful. This is revival. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it wonderful? But but we, we need to get on with mission. You know, and then we're told that, you know, Peter stands up and he says, all right, let's get on with this thing. We need uh, someone to replace, you know, Judas. And, and he talks about, verse 17, he was one of our number and shared in our ministry. I don't think we fully appreciate the sense of betrayal and hurt and disappointment that the disciples would have felt. They were with Judas for three years and for Judas to turn out to be the betrayer of Jesus would have been heartbreaking for them. And then Peter goes on to say that, you know, and everyone knows about this too. And the shame of that, you know, of people talking and going, oh, you know, you're saying that Jesus is the Messiah, he's the son of God. And well, he couldn't even pick a, a good 
disciple. Look at what one of his own did. And they could have just wallowed in self-pity, in bitterness, in hurt, in that sense of betrayal and loss and anger at Judas. Easy to happen. And again, for us too, things happen in the life of church. People we journey with for a long time decide they don't want to follow Jesus anymore. And there's a hurt and a sense of betrayal and disappointment that comes, particularly if you're a leader or a, you know, a connect group leader or an elder or you know, you've been, you know, again, as brothers and sisters journeying intimately and closely with someone. And it's so easy to, to kind of give in to that despair and that hopelessness and just be so discouraged and go, you know what, what's the point? But I love here that Luke tells us that in spite of all of those challenges that this early church had, that these men and women, they were like, come on, we got a mission. Jesus is going to give us the Holy Spirit. Yes, we don't want to get, we're going to enjoy the glory times and, and the wonderful things of God's presence. And we'll see that in the book of Acts. They had many, many encounters with God in the Holy Spirit. But none of them resulted in a closing of the doors and saying, we're just going to have great times together as Christians. It always led them to go outward. And yes, we will see that the early church, like ours, like every other church, is messy. There's conflict. There's problems. There's disappointment. There's hurt. There's betrayal. There's people letting people down and, and people leave and, and, and there leaves brokenness in our hearts. And they're all the realities of being in church. Being a church doesn't make us immune from any of those things. And we just think, man, we all love Jesus. We should be able to get along. But it doesn't always work that way. But God's got a call on us as a church to unite around the vision that he's given us, to be on mission, to be about his kingdom work in the world, united together. The last thing that I see here in this community is that they were a people that were soaked in the scriptures and in prayer. And in prayer, you know, we're told that verse 14, they all joined together constantly in prayer constantly in prayer. They were a praying church. And we see in those verses that Peter is recounting scripture to them and saying, you know, yes, Judas, it was a betrayal and a disappointment, a shame, but it was part of God's plan. And we know that because of what the scriptures teach us. And they were going back to the word to encourage themselves. They're going back to the word to, to receive instruction about what we do next. Where do we go next? And they're, they're praying about God's appointment. They're praying and they're relying on the word of God and, and the power of God in prayer. And they were soaked in it. And we'll see that over and over again. They come together and they're praying constantly and continually, seeking God, seeking God for his work in the world. And often when they're doing that, the Holy Spirit comes in power, empowering them, equipping them. And, and yes, they're, they're experiencing the subjective presence and power of God in their life in fullness. But they're empowered to be declaring and doing the works of Jesus. That's what Luke says in verse one. I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach, which means now I'm gonna write to you about all the things that Jesus continued to do and declare through his spirit-empowered people. They were a praying church. You know, a guy um, called Orr, it's a weird name, he is a student of revivals, and this is what he said. 
No great spiritual awakening has begun anywhere in the world apart from united prayer. That's profound. No, no spiritual awakening. No, no revival that he, as he, and he studied many of them. He looked at the patterns and he looked at kind of what, what kind of caused revival. How did revival come? Now we can't control revival. That's sovereign in God's plan and purpose. And God brings it about according to his good pleasure. And we see that happening in the book of Acts. And we trust God. But what he's saying is the inverse is true. That there's a connection between prayer and revival. And no revival has come without prior prayer. You know, and I want to just encourage you uh, with a story about the Great Awakening in America in the mid-1800s. That, that Great Awakening saw about two million people come to Jesus in about two years, which is huge. And I, I think at the, at the time, the, the population, I don't know whether it was America or New York, was about five million. So a lot of people in terms of the percentage. But that awakening, that revival, renewal, whatever you want to call it, was begun by one man. Really, one man feeling impressed by God to pray. And it was a businessman, a 46-year-old ordinary businessman. And if you can put the next slide up, you'll, you'll see, you know, I think it's in New York, there's like a, a little monument to him as well. His name was Jeremiah Lanfear. And he started this daily prayer meeting for one hour from 12 o'clock to one o'clock. And he said to people, just come with it for five minutes, for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or stay the whole hour and just pray. Just pray. Pray for New York. Pray for our city. And when it started on the first day, he was there by himself. For the first half an hour, he was praying by himself. And then the story goes that in the next few minutes, there were one or two people that came and joined him in prayer. And then the next day, there was a few more. And the next day, a few more. The next day, a few more. And then other people in other places began to feel the same impression of the Holy Spirit to pray. And they started their own prayer meetings. And before long, there were people all over the city praying for renewal and revival. And God moved in a powerful way. So I want to encourage you, church. Come for our prayer and worship night and pray for our city. Pray for our church. Come on a Sunday morning. Every Sunday, we pray from 9.15 to 9.45. We pray for our city. Pray for our church. We pray for the service. Our prayer and fasting week. Join in. Fast. Pray, seek the Lord. It doesn't guarantee that revival will come in our day, but it does guarantee that revival won't come unless we pray. And so we pray, and we leave the rest in God's sovereign hands. And I encourage you, pray on your own. It doesn't have to be in corporate. Corporate prayer is powerful and awesome, but pray, be in the word, soak yourself in, in the word. Continually open your heart to the Holy Spirit. Continually press into God for his fullness because that's what Jesus promised we would have, that we would be baptized, immersed, soaked in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's not an optional extra. It's not a, I choose not to have that in my Christian experience. It is available for all of us. And Jesus wants all of us to be so filled with his love and his presence and his power that we won't be able to help but want to tell other people about Jesus. That he's alive and that he's risen and that he's alive because we have met him. We have encountered him. He has touched our lives. He has changed our lives in a world that says, give me proof. He said, my life is my proof. Jesus has changed me. 
And that's why I know he's alive, because he's alive in my heart. Will you bow your heads and, and just take a moment to reflect? I'll ask the band to come up. We're just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come. I encourage you to open your heart. Open your heart to the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We worship you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Worship you, Jesus. Father, we just invite you to come. I know you're here, Lord, but we say those things that, Lord, we're intentionally focusing on your presence. And so I pray, Lord, that you will come afresh and, and in a very real and, and, and tangible way in this moment. Lord, we want to encounter Jesus. Lord, we want to put aside our differences and be united around Jesus. Oh God, we want to be about your mission to not lose sight of that, to not lose focus in spite of the many things that threaten to distract us. Our, in our Western context, our busyness, our, our lives, the rest of the week, so many things that can distract us. And Lord, we want to be a people of prayer. We want to be a people that come around your word and are soaked in it, immersed in it. And Lord, we want to confess we need your Holy Spirit today. We can't do any of this without you. We need your Holy Spirit. You know, this morning I really felt to just pray for each of us. I want you to stand and we're going to worship together. And I encourage you, let's get hungry, church, for the Holy Spirit. You know, let's, let's really press into God. And we're going to worship. We're going to spend some time just worshiping, a few minutes just worshiping. And I'd love for our connect group leaders, our elders to just walk around like we've done a few other times and just to pray for you right where you are. Because, you know, I was thinking, I'd like to pray for every single one of you and it's a bit hard to get you all to come to the front. So we're just going to come to you wherever you are. Connect group leaders, just mingle around. I know it's going to be a bit challenging working our way through the aisles, but as best as we can to come and pray for you, to be filled with the Holy Spirit be filled with the presence and the power of Jesus. That's what we want, church. Is that what you want? Yeah, come on, let's begin to worship. And connect group leaders, if you can just start walking around and just laying hands on people and praying for the fullness of the presence of God, for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, for the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we're going to do that. Thank you for listening to the Parramatta Christian Church podcast. To hear other sermons or to find out more about our church, please visit our website at pcc.org.au.